and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Intentional Performers Podcast. I'm Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. As a reminder, I work as a mental performance coach, which gives me the opportunity to work with both executives in the corporate world and athletes in the sports world to help them develop their mindset to hopefully unlock possibility, unlock potential, and enjoy success. So I love what I do for a living. And as a result, I fired up this podcast to interview like-minded professionals and performers. Now, before we get to today's guest, I just want to let you know about how you might be able to help us out. First of all, thank you so much for listening. Really appreciate that you are here. If you're here for the first time, welcome. If you have listened to all of the episodes, thanks for the continued support. It really does mean a lot to us. We do have a Patreon homepage. It's patreon.com backslash intentional performers. And over there, you can help support the podcast financially. So you can throw us a few bucks a month. And it really does go a long way to help us keep this thing going and make the podcast as strong as it possibly can be. Now, to today's guest. Melissa Agnes is an author, she's a strategic advisor, and she's a keynote speaker. She wrote the book Crisis Ready, Building an Invincible Brand in an Uncertain World. She is a leading authority on crisis preparedness, reputation management, and brand protection. And we're going to talk about how brand and crisis readiness blend together and how Melissa got into that line of work. Melissa's resume is certainly impressive. She's worked with NATO, the ministries of foreign affairs and defense, financial firms, technology companies, healthcare organizations, cities and municipalities, law enforcement agencies, nonprofits, many, many others. So she helps them understand risk and build invincible brands that can withstand even the most devastating of events. In 2015, Melissa gave a TEDx talk in Los Angeles where she discussed the secret to successful crisis management in the 21st century. And certainly you can check out that that video on Melissa's website. Melissa is the editor of the Crisis Ready blog, a contributor to Forbes, and a go-to source for the press with recent coverage including the Wall Street Journal, Vibe Magazine, USA Today, and many others. She also is a university guest lecturer, which is pretty amazing as you will hear from Melissa's story because she did not go to university, but she teaches crisis management in university courses around the world, including at NYU and McGill. Melissa has a bright personality, 
but she also will talk a lot about her truth and how she lives her truth and tries to live her truth and trust her intuition to speak her truth into action. So I know you're going to love this conversation with Melissa. And when you do, if you could share it on social media, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, wherever it is your social, we'd be forever grateful. Now, without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Melissa Agnes. Melissa, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm excited to chat with you. We've chatted a bit in the past and we were connected by a guy named Alan Stein who actually has been on the podcast and I'm actually seeing Alan this week. So uh, I will tell him that you say hi and uh, excited to connect with you. Um, where I'd actually love to start with you is to really find out who you are and what makes you you and what makes you unique and what makes you special and all that good stuff. And the best way for me to do that is to find out a little bit about your upbringing. So take us there, take us to where you grew up, how you grew up, uh, and then we'll find out more about uh, the adult version of you as well. Okay, cool. Um, thank you for not asking me what makes me special because I would not be able to answer that. That would feel too weird. Um, okay, where I grew up. I grew up in Montreal. I'm born and raised in Montreal. Um, I come from, my parents were very young when they had me. My mom was 20. My dad was 21. And both are, how do I put this? Both are struggling humans. They both have, you know, they're, they're, I'm, they were young too. Um, so my, they divorced or split, they were never married, but they split when I was three and my sister was just about to be born. Um, and then it was kind of a whirlwind up until I was 18. Uh, my dad moved to the other side of the country, so I rarely saw him. And my mom, um, series of, relationships, terrible, awful relationships, um, kind of just bouncing. I think I lived in something like um, 12 homes in 18 years, something like that, uh, with like 22 dogs. and eight. So just like a very unstable um, childhood. Um, yeah. And however, you know, we found our, our good things. I have, she then found another man and I have another brother and sister with her, my dad got married and has another brother. I feel like I'm just rambling. I'm not good at talking about. <laughs> well, it sounds like it wasn't it wasn't the easiest sort of upbringing. It certainly wasn't, um, which lends to who I am today and a whole bunch of different understandings on on the world and people. What what what's your relationship like with your sister? Um, Stephanie, my full blood sister, is. Uh, <laughs> Not right now. So I have a very deep bond with Stephanie. She, I uh, left school when I was 18 and fought for legal custody of her and gained it. Um, so I have a, I have a very, very strong bond with her that is unbreakable. However, she chooses a life that I can't watch unfold anymore just because it's a very um, abusive lifestyle um, towards herself. And I had to, one of the biggest, most difficult lessons of my life was at 25 when I had to realize that I can't help somebody who doesn't want to be helped. And I had to step back and, and just let her lead her life and, and have her know that I'm here for her whenever she needs me. But, you know, I'm not going to stand by and watch anymore. So Melissa, you are getting quite personal there, Brian. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I just think, and, and we'll get to the, the crisis stuff, but you gave us a little nugget where you said it's probably why um, I ended up learning about this stuff. What was your North Star as a kid? What what helped guide you? Um, Me. When, 
I was my North Star. And that, I say that, um, I've put a lot of reflection. I'm a, I'm a, I analyze everything and I internalize everything and um, I seek to understand the reason behind everything. I was very, I'm the ugly duckling in my family. And I say that just as the, I am the differentiating factor. Um, and I always knew that I didn't fit in. I always knew that I didn't belong. I didn't know what it meant to fit in. I didn't know what it meant to find the at all. Actually, for a long time, I just thought that I was an unlikable person and I was completely cool with that. Like that was just, but I always knew that I always believed in what in me and in that I could have the future. I didn't have to follow suit. I didn't have to conform um, to the normal that I knew. I knew that if I got away and I worked on me, then I could have whatever life I chose. And for me, success is intrinsic happiness. So that's all I cared about. I just want to be happy and I want to be really, really, truly happy. And I want to lie in bed at night and really be, um, have an appreciation for the person that I am. Do you think you were, you were born that way or did, did someone show you a a lightness? I had had to have been born that way because nobody showed me. Mm. And was there anybody that mentored you when you were younger? Um, my uncle Jason, who's, who's not with us anymore, um, was my hero. I wasn't very close to him, but he was always, cause it was difficult for him. Um, he was also an ugly duckling. So he was there in very subtle, powerful ways when I needed him most. Um, and I think, yeah, he was my kind of, yeah, he led in that sense. And I'm sure there are people that are listening to this that come from backgrounds that are, are somewhat similar to you. What, what advice would you give them if somebody was in a, a environment that they felt did not suit what they were aspiring to be? Believe in you. And I'm, this is going to sound so cliche, but I mean it with all of my heart. Um, your truth is your truth. Listen to your truth and follow it. And wh- what's your truth? My truth. Ooh, that's a big question. My truth. There's so many. Um, right now, my truth is that I'm still, I'm kind of, I just transformed my life um, last year. And my truth is figuring out what this new life really is and means or what I want it to be. Everything from where do I want to live in the world to, you know, all of it. Where do I want to take my business? Um, but my truth is, is I believe in empowering other people. That is, that's when I'm my best self is when I can help other people be their best selves. Um, whether that's business in crisis readiness or just human interaction one-on-one. Very cool. And you said last year you transformed. Talk to us a little bit about that. Oh, I left my husband. I left my husband of 12 years. Um, beautiful human, incredible human. We had an amazing relationship. I just kind of realized one day that I wasn't in love with him anymore. And that was my truth. I had no plan. I had no des- I didn't even want that to be a truth. Um, but the second I realized that it was my truth, I came home and I left him. And that was last September. So that's about 10 months ago. And today he is one of my most beautiful, closest friends. And we have this outstanding um, relationship 
friendship based on trust and respect and a respect for the love that we want shared and the life that we want shared. Um, but it really was literally, I went away on a business trip. It came to full consciousness that I wasn't in love with him anymore. I came home and I left him. Um, and then there was a, a crisis management um, through line in that to help him get to the place that emotionally that he needed to get to in order to be good and happy and, you know, at peace with it. Um, and we did, we worked through it together and it was beautiful and it was challenging. And um, today we're in this, this wonderful, wonderful place, which I, I wish for everybody who is not in a relationship that, you know, is the best that they deserve, I suppose. Are you more of a risk taker or a rule follower? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I follow my own rules. I live by my values. I, for a crisis management professional, I am a risk taker. I assess all risk, however, and I uh, mitigate what I can and I prepare for what I can't and then I jump. And you mentioned values. What are, what are some of the values that you live by? Um, honesty. I think that's the deepest one. And I think that's the through line of it's, and it goes to truth. It goes to knowing your truth. I mean, people ask me, just look at the situation with, with Colt, my husband. Um, uh, people say like, seriously, you just went home and you left him. And that shocked me. And then they would call me brave. And I would say, that's not bravery. That's truth. Like, what am I going to do? What's my alternative? I'm going to go home and I'm going to pretend, or I'm going to lie. Like that didn't sit right with me. So I may not have had a plan. I may not have had any foresight into what was going to be. Um, but I knew what my truth was and I knew that I deserved to follow that and Colt deserved for me to follow that and for me to also do right by him in doing so. Yeah, that, that, I think that's so powerful because in my head I was thinking courage, strength, uh, and I'm glad I asked that question because I think truth, you know, I, I'm American so I can, I can speak on this. I think the biggest, I mean, there's a lot of issues I have with our current president and I'm not going to go too deep into politics, but the number one is, is a lack of truth. And, uh, you know, I think, um, honesty is, is it's, it's almost like the value we get taught the earliest in our life. Like just, just tell the truth, like don't lie. But as we get older and older, I think lying becomes more accepted, uh, as mm -hmm. adults. Um, why because is it? Issues yeah. are taboo because issues are taboo and people, one of the, when I say that I, I, I want to help empower people, I mean to live and own their truths. I think that the world would be a kinder, safer, happier space, place if people owned who they are and loved themselves for all of that. Uh, we're not perfect. Nobody is clearly like that's just, um, but we can always, there's always something to work on and there's always an evolution. We're always working towards something, right? So it's always who, who is your best self and how can you get there? And once you get to that vision of you, something else in life is going to confront you and you're going to say, wow, there's a weakness there, or there's a gap there, or there's something that I don't like the way that I reacted there. How can I now work on that to be the next version of my best self? And I think that if more people really, really understood and weren't scared of their truths um, and acknowledged them and owned them within themselves, loving yourself, like, and I don't mean that to be cliche, but lying in bed and being really, really happy with the person that you are is the biggest gift you can give to yourself and to the world because that ricochets into just, it, it, 
you know, it creates the energy around you, the aura around you. It has this positive effect and this rippling um, effect on the people who surround you and empowers them to now be, you know, their best self or to help overcome certain internal obstacles. And I think that we won't get into politics, but even leaders uh, in this day and in this world, I think that's, they're human, right? And I think that that's one of the biggest problems that I see is that people are scared to live and own their own truths or even to admit their own truths to themselves. And it starts with that. And it's not easy. Well, there's, there's another side to that too, is um, we live in a society now where if you do share that vulnerability and that truth that we all have, I'm not going to go into skeletons in our closet, but we're not perfect, as you said. No. And so uh, we also have put certain people up on a pedestal and the moment that they are exposed for not being perfect, uh, we also have this shaming that goes on um, in today's world, certainly on social media, where if people express their truth and there's some ugliness to it, um, there, there's there's consequences, there's repercussions. So if you're working with an organization or a CEO um, on their truth, how do you help them do that without potentially putting them in a, a dangerous situation? Um, so I, firstly, don't work with organizations that have toxic cultures that are not ready and willing to do the work to fix or improve that. That just, those those people, that mindset is a waste of my time and doesn't align with, I can't help them, right? So just if, like with my sister, I can't help who doesn't want to be helped. Got it. So if, if I'm the head of a company and we've had all kinds of sexual harassment complaints uh, and we have an issue with sexual harassment and we say, hey, Melissa, we need, we are at a crisis here in our company. We have this culture of sexual harassment. That's not the client that, that you would work with. Is that No, actually, if they come to me and they say we have this culture and we it needs to change, then absolutely. I come in. They just my whole point was that um they need to want to change and ready to do the work. Um and then it's about doing the work and it's not easy. Just like working on yourself is not easy. I used to say when I was going through the, you know, most challenging times in my life was working on yourself, there's no weekends or holidays off. It's an everyday endeavor. I'm also somebody who likes to move fast. So I like to evolve quickly. I like to learn quickly. I like to progress quickly. Um, so I don't take time off. I keep going. Um, but it's the same if you have an issue within your organization, especially if it's cultural, because those are the most challenging types of crises and issues to manage because and overcome because they're so deep-seated into the fibers of the organization. So it takes a lot, but with the right mindset and the right commitment, everything is possible. I'm just curious because you use the word culture and I understand how you're using it uh, in an organization standpoint, but I'm curious how you see yourself uh, culturally. Ooh, give me more to that question. So yeah, I identity answer. or what, what, when you think of yourself uh, and you're, you're laying in bed and you're happy, what do you think your culture is? Um, when I'm laying in bed and I'm happy, I know that I am, that's a difficult question, or it's an interesting question. I've never been asked that before, um, is when I know that I'm being 
living my truth and being my truth every day. Um, that's when I am the most empowered and the, and the happiest. And that's when you feel the best in your skin, right? Is when you are who you are, when you're authentically you. Um, and everybody deserves that gift and to give that gift to themselves. Um, culturally, I am, I guess, very millennial. I'm a, I'm a, like on the older end of the spectrum of millennial, but I am a millennial. Um, and so, you know, you talked about when people come out with their truths and they're shamed or they are judged. I believe that we have no right to judge anybody, that everybody is walk is doing the best that they can in their life and is on their own journey. Um, and who the hell are we to judge, right? Anybody, um, judge yourself and work on that and then, and then look outwards. Um, and be kind to yourself in your judgment. Like, don't even judge yourself. <laughs> Just work towards wherever you want to go and how, who you want to be. Um, I don't know that I'm answering your question. It's a, it's an interesting question. I just think I cultures, so culture is such a uh, buzzword. And we talked about this before even we, we started rolling on the podcast. People are, uh, I think most companies now understand, all right, we're going to put values up on the wall. We're going to have a culture of... Uh, fearlessness or of risk taking mm. or, you know, we hear certain buzzwords. Um, but I just wanted to go inward with you and really think about like, how do you see yourself culturally? And, and I, I mentioned earlier, like I see myself as an American um, and you mentioned millennial, like a lot of times we do put people into a box and say, that's who they are. Uh, when we're usually a multitude of maybe 12, 12 or 15 things that make up our identity. So if I were to say culturally, you're a Canadian, like, well, what does that mean? There's all kinds of different types of Canadians, you know, yeah. you know, am I an American culturally? Well, I mean, there's aspects of me that are probably similar and then very different from other Americans. So um, that's why I was just, I was just trying to bring it back to you to figure out, all right, well, how do you see yourself when, when you look in the mirror? Um, okay. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't identify myself as a millennial. I wouldn't identify myself as a Canadian. I am both of those things, but I wouldn't identify myself as those. Um, I would identify myself as somebody who really like culturally, I suppose is, such an interesting question. Again, it's going to go back to really, really me. Um, let's say, so, so take a different lens. I'm somebody who is extremely analytical. I'm somebody who is, um, analyze, I analyze everything from the emotion that I feel to situations that I see. I mean, I analyze everything. My brain works in risk. So I look at risk. I then see a mitigation strategy to risk and then opportunity through mitigation. That is the way that my brain functions and always has. It's a good reason, or it's a big part of why I'm really good at what I do. Um, I'm somebody who just wants to, again, empower people. So there's no judgment. Um, I judge myself. I'm working on that. Um, I am a, I have, oh, I have huge, like I set monstrous goals and am extremely ambitious and work towards those. And that drives me and excites me. I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know if I'm answering, but <laughs> I, I've never asked this question before. And I just brought it up because I, I think what you're talking about is that you walk culture, like you, you, culture is how you act. Uh, and, and so we often think that culture is, as you said, like is up on a wall somewhere, but culture is, is in action. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, there have been companies that have like Enron is a really good example. They had this culture that was 
on paper looked great, um, but they weren't truthful. Um, and so uh, that ended up hurting them. So I think culture is in action. So I think to your point, culture is, is you. You've said, a, you've said that you're very analytical and you like mm. to notice things, but you've also said, but I'm not, I, I try not to judge. Mm-hmm. Teach me. Teach me how you can analyze without judgment. Oh, that's a great question. And it's easy. Well, to me, it's easy. So to me, so my favorite word in the, in the, in, well, I'm bilingual. So in any language is why. Um, it's, I like to understand. That is, and it's another reason why I'm very good at what I do. Um, so therefore, I analyze everything to understand its truth. However, it's not on me to judge that truth. So I want to understand it as data. I want to take that data. At, so for example, let me let me give you a really good example. I recently learned that um, a person that I love dearly has lived with a secret and that secret is um, infidelity, not in their relationship because they aren't in one, but in a different, in, in somebody else's. And I realized in that moment that I placed a judgment, not on that human, but on the act of infidelity. And I, when I realized that, that I was judging, I needed to better understand I needed to give myself more information so that I could have a broader view and not judge. So I read this magnificent book by Esther Perel called um, The State of Affairs. And she's she's just this brilliant human um, doctor, psychologist, psychiatrist who has worked with, you know, she works with relationships. And this book is on the full scope and spectrum of infidelity from every single angle for every single reason. And I learned so much through this book that I realized that my judgment towards infidelity was societal based. It was what society, it was me conforming and yet I refuse to conform ever um, unless it's my choice to, right? So I want data, I want knowledge, and then I will make an intelligent and educated decision. Um, so in understanding and learning this book and broadening my view, it enabled me to, again, I did not judge this person, but I judged the act and I, and I felt pity for this person because of the turmoil that it has caused them over the years. And yet now I've come out of it with a broader lens and an understanding that who the hell am I to judge? Like everybody walks their path and everybody does things for their own reasons, whether they understand them or not. But those reasons are their truths and it's up to them to figure them out. So no, I would not, um, you know, want my partner in the future to be unfaithful to me. If that was, you know, if we had a, a monogamous relationship an agreed upon monogamous relationship. However, if, that partner came to me with clear, you know, understanding of what happened and why I would now be more open than I was in the past, if this is making sense. So it's not about, so, so your question was, how do you, how do you gain knowledge without judgment? Yeah. How do you analyze without without judgment? judgment. So analyzing is data to understand full scope and spectrum. Judgment is not in my opinion, is not our place to be done unless you're judging yourself, in which case that means that you have work to do. Um, but 
Does that make sense? It's yeah. it's about retaining. It's about gathering information so that you're better educated, better informed, make smarter decisions in the future, and have more compassion. So to me, analyzing gives you compa- or gives me compassion versus judgment. Got it. And, and eventually, you will make an assessment based on the data uh, or the data. And and now it's not necessarily a judgment. Now it's based on. The information you've collected and your values and your values. Okay. I I can dig that. I want to, I want to just pivot a little bit. So you're 18 years old. Uh, you're in charge of your younger sister. Um, how do you take the path? What just close the loop on your story a little bit. Uh, how do you end up, uh, where you are today and and just fill fill in the gaps a little bit. Wow. There's, there's some big gaps there. Um, okay. So I took my sister in, um, she ended up, she was 15. Two years later, she got an apartment. Uh, I decided, so at 21, I decided that I was going to be an entrepreneur because I was a terrible, terrible, terrible employee. I'd never realized how hardworking I am until I became in charge of my own life. And that's a big part of it. So I loved what I did and I did everything from dental assistant to, um, cocktail waitress to daycare teacher to like, I was trying to figure myself out. And any and school, no, no, no university or anything no like university. that? No, which is so counter to what I believed because growing up, my dream was university. That mm. was my dream. Um, so and I what, never went. Now I teach, but yeah, no, I never went. Why did it shift or, or when did it for shift my for my sister? You? It mm. shifted for my sister. Um, and that's, and that's great. You know, like that was just a different path. It was the right path. Um, so I at, eight, at 18, the option to go to school, you say, I have to take care of my sister. And that yeah. came before. And I got like three jobs. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, and that's fine. So, and no, actually it was wonderful because I am where I am. Um, so entrepreneur at 21, oh my goodness. I started my first entrepreneurial expedition was um, photo montages for senior people, which in it, which you know, led me to lose more money on every sale that I made. So it's kind of embarrassing. That was my, that was my university education. Um, but that led to graphic design and branding and social media marketing, which led to where I am today. Um, and my ex-husband was my business partner. We started the business together 11 years ago and I bought him out this January. So now I am sole owner of my business. Um, and, and doing some wonderful, what I believe to be very wonderful work. And walk us through branding and how it ties with, with crisis management. Where it led to. So, um, so I mentioned earlier that my mind sees risk and I was doing branding and digital branding, digital, digital strategies at the time when about nine years ago, when companies were just realizing that they should be on social. It was that, you know, moment in time where it was like, hey, we could be on social and hey, there's all this opportunity to connect and speak directly with our market and all of these wonderful things. And I I remember the exact moment. I woke up one morning, I was doing my morning reading and it just struck me as to why is nobody talking about the risk? Because that's what my mind sees. Nobody's talking about the risk of social, of technology, of digital, of the real-time news cycle, of two-way communication with stakeholders. Nobody's talking about the risk. And yet in talking about the risk and addressing the risk, I could also see all of the mitigation strategies to those risks. And then I saw these wonderful opportunities that were unprecedented before. So when something goes wrong today, yes, we're met with a myriad of new real-time challenges and obstacles. But the, the flip side of that is we're also presented with 
unprecedented opportunity. I mean, the Ebola crisis, the world crisis of Ebola was managed by the U with the use of the strategic use of the WhatsApp app. I mean, we have opportunity in crisis and issue management today because of technology that we never had before. So this is where my brain went. Um, and I, then I spent a year and I didn't know that crisis management was a thing at the time. So this kind of opened my mind to that. And I spent a year learning and devouring everything I could on the subject matter, but yet it was all traditional. None of it talked about technology or, um, you know, this society. This society is very digital. And so I kept turning to Colt and saying, there's something here, there's something here, there's something here, but I couldn't quite figure out what it was yet. And he could just see my passion skyrocketing. And then one day, one very early morning, one of my clients, which was a real estate investment trust, so a public company that invests in real estate, their primary stakeholder are their investors. And they, we had just launched their website the week before, and their um, VP calls me at like 6.30 in the morning in a panic saying, our president's in the car with a prospective investor. The media is reporting on the radio that one of our buildings is about to explode. We have no idea where this rumor, like why it happened, but because it's not true. Apparently it started on Twitter. We have no idea what the hell Twitter is, but we're told it's a digital thing. And since you just launched our website, we're hoping you can help us. Wow. And right place, right time, right person to call. Within a half an hour, I had everything fixed. I had the media correcting themselves. I had you know, information going to investors because investors were not going to Twitter. Um, and that's where it was unfolding. Anyways, long story short, um, the next day, the president of the company calls me and says, not only did our unit price not go down since yesterday, but it actually went up a cent. So thank you so much. And that was my aha moment of it, everything just clicked. Everything just came together and it was, oh my goodness, I can serve. And oh my goodness, organizations need this and they're going to need it more and more. Um, so I looked at Colt and I said, I want to jump. Let's go. And he said, all right, let's go. And my strategy as a young entrepreneur with very, very, very limit, limited budget was to start a blog. I dedicated myself to blogging five days a week, and I did that for several years. Right place, right time. Mine was the first blog in the world to really start asking and putting out, put, putting forth these really interesting and um, real questions, important questions, and providing answers to them. And as a result, I had these wonderful crisis management professionals who had these long-standing careers come to me, find me and say, you know, we're not sure if this whole digital thing is a fad or a trend. We don't know how long it's going to last. We don't necessarily want to learn it because we're nearing retirement, but we're smart enough to know that our clients need you now. Can we partner? Mm. And they became wonderful mentors who opened up their client list to me. And that's how I, that's how I began in this, in this career. So cool. And you just lit up as you told that part of the story. And uh, it was just cool to watch you and, and they're not going to be able to watch you. So they're just going to be able to listen. So I'm just going to uh, replay it back so that our listeners know. Uh, I think the beginning part, you know, Melissa, you could see some of her anxiety or angst talking about her upbringing. But what you just heard from her and hopefully it came across in her tone is excitement, passion, energy. Uh, it's clear that that there's, there's a lot to be proud of um, in that regard. I wanted to try to go into intuition because you now have given me three different glimpses of how you've leveraged intuition in, in your life. Uh, you talked about you know leaving your husband and just being somewhere one day and being like, you know what? I'm not in love with him anymore and I have to act. Uh, you talked about just now, uh, hey, 6.30 in the morning, I, all right, I got to act. Uh, and you talked about before uh, when 
your husband, you were doing the branding and, and you sort of sat down one day and you started thinking about the social media component. So you've given us three different glimpses of intuition and how it plays in your life. Uh, unlock that a little bit for us, unpack that a little bit for us as far as how you use intuition and what intuition feels like for you. It goes back to truth. It really does. All of those moments were my truths. Um, what it feels like is so, okay. So it, it, it feels like a truth coming to the surface. Um, when, and you don't, I don't always have all of the pieces. I remember a year before for the year before I left my husband, I kept saying to him, we had just bought our dream home. And, um, I kept saying to him this summer, feels different. I don't feel, I should feel happier in this home. Last summer, I remembered I was comparing apples to apples. So last summer, this is what I felt this summer. And I couldn't identify why. And I had no idea that it was what it ended up being, but I knew there was something. And it was something that I was doing the internal work of analyzing and assessing and trying to figure it out. And when it bubbled to the top, it became the second I said it out loud was the first time I said it to myself, never mind out loud. And then it was just the truth. So same thing with um, the year that I spent uh, understanding and studying crisis management. It was, there's something here, there's something here. And just listening to that, that profound truth that was screaming to me, but not understanding what those pieces meant or what to do with them, but knowing that I needed to continue following along that path because it just, I knew that you just know, or I just knew like that was, it lit me. You said that I just lit up telling that story. This is my candy. I call my work, my candy crisis management, crisis readiness, the work that I do with organizations, the work that I do with law enforcement, the work that I do with world leaders, like that is my candy. Um, so when you follow, you know, like when you, when you listen to yourself and to your truths, even if you don't fully understand them, but if you put the time and the work internally to, just work every day towards uncovering it a little bit more, unleashing it a little bit more. It eventually boils, in my experience, it eventually bubbles to the top. And for me, the second it hits the surface, I need to act. If I don't act, then then I'm wasting myself. Um, so, yeah. What do you intentionally do daily to go inward? That is a very challenge. I try to figure that out because if I could put my finger on exactly what I do, I believe that I could help so many people. <laughs> so I have been trying to analyze that. Honestly, it's work. So I'll give you another example. I'm going very personal here, but I think that it might be, I know the, the, the theme and the topic of, of your podcast. And I think it maybe, hopefully it might help. Um, I'm not somebody who does well with emotion. I love happy emotion. I love positive emotion. Everybody does, but I don't, for me, I've always needed to be, and it comes from my upbringing. Um, I need to be strong. And so for me, vulnerability and sadness or anger are, I always saw those as weaknesses and I need to be strong. When I left Colt, I realized that there was a lot of emotion that um, I didn't understand and I wanted to, I didn't like because it was sadness and it was anger and it wasn't towards him. It was just towards just a whole bunch of different things. It was my cycle of, of leaving a, a, a beautiful human and a life that I had chosen that was, there was nothing wrong with it, right? It was not unhappy. I just was not as happy as I know I can be and as he can be. Um, so there was a lot of guilt with that. There was a lot of all of these things. And I realized in those moments that, wow, I really don't do well. Like I don't cry. So a stranger asked me over dinner. He was like, when's the last time you cried? And I was going through a divorce. And I was like, I don't know. 
like, I don't know, a couple months ago and it lasted the duration of a song. Like that's not normal. <laughs> so I realized that that's not normal and that's not healthy. Um, so I've worked over the last really six months, seven months to, I've, I've changed the mantra in my head. So I've told myself that vulnerability is strength, not weakness. And it takes an act of kindness towards myself to feel anger because I can rationalize myself out of anger every single time. And that's not healthy. So what I've done to answer your question, every single day was some kind of work towards where I wanted to go. Where I wanted to go was knowing that vulnerability is strength and anger is a kindness towards myself and being comfortable with feeling and living those emotions. I'm there now. I was recently challenged a couple weeks ago and I am officially there and it just changed my world. Um, but it was everything, everything in the sense of I decided two years ago that I wanted to learn piano. And I, while I am, I can play piano, I can play my notes, I can read music. I, if I play a piece and my teacher plays a piece, the same piece, it's two completely different pieces. It comes across. The reason being, she is able to put emotion into hers and make herself vulnerable in doing so, whereas I have roadblocks. I can't do that. So I, I identified that as a correlation, and I started using piano as a tool to help myself, to challenge myself to be more vulnerable and to put emotion into the piece. So it was. it's really just, to answer your question, this is why it's so difficult. I wish that I can just like bottle it up and encapsulate it and, and give it to other people because it works, but it takes work. But I think it's about just being very, very open and receptive to everything that of who you are. And knowing that there's no right answer, there's no wrong answer, but I always have objectives. I always have a place I want to go, whether it's in personal or business. This one is my was my personal. And it was every single day, how am I feeling? Am I being kind to myself? Am I feeling vulnerable? Is that a strength? Like it was this constant listening of my inner self and working towards the objective, the goal that I've set for myself, and then finding tools and opportunities to challenge myself. So piano was one tool. Being vulnerable with friends was another one. Not always coming across as everything is okay, but being vulnerable and saying, hey, I'm sad today. Um, and I don't know why, but I'm telling you because I know that I don't feel comfortable telling you. So I'm challenging myself to tell you and having beautiful friends that say, I can relate to that or here, have you, you know, they're better with emotions. So have you tried this or have you done this and realizing, oh my goodness, that helped me and they love me. And, you know, like, so it's just finding those opportunities. Does any of that make any sense? Completely. And I'll offer up an observation and, and give you a, give you a little break. Uh, <laughs> uh my observation is that the stoicism or the emotional control that you developed or the strength as you called it has helped you in crisis survive. management. Yeah. Yes. And it's helped you, it's helped you survive, get you to where you need to be, deal with the crisis in your life. Um, and then help others deal with crisis in their life. And my question is, is it possible that, that what your clients might need to survive is different than what you might need individually to thrive? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, and it's also who I am. So I was, it's funny because I was crisis readying. So anybody who knows my work knows or has read my book, um, knows that I talk about understanding the difference between an issue and a crisis, defining that for your organization, and then identifying the most likely high impact scenarios of issue and crisis that you're prone to. In my relationship, what's a high risk scenario for a relationship is a split right? is not being together anymore. 
I look back and I believe that the big part of the reason that Colt and I are where we are today, one is because of the humans that we are. Um, and two is because I, I crisis readied <laughs> throughout the relationship where I would say things like, I hope that one day if we aren't in love anymore, that we have the strength to kiss each other goodbye and be happy for each other and move on. Um, I would say things like that. Or when, when I left him, I would say maybe one day we can work or maybe we can work towards one day being friends who shared 12 beautiful years together. And that resonated with him and that stuck with him. And that became our mission and our objective was how do we get to there? How do we take steps every day to get to that, even though we're going through these emotions now and we're human um, and it's not very pleasant, right? In those emotions. So the crisis management, the, the strength is definitely what organizations need, but they also need human. They also, my best self is being fully, fully embracing the fact that I'm fully human, right? That I, I don't have control over everything, that I, I will feel sadness and I will feel anger um, and that that's okay. And I think that getting to that next evolution of, of Melissa Agnes, of who I am, will better serve and does better serve my clients as a result. I think there's also noticing. So I can notice that I'm anxious uh, and observe it. And uh, a lot of this is based in mindfulness, right? Just noticing the emotion, noticing the feelings, noticing the thoughts, um, and just noticing. And it doesn't mean you need to act anxious, but you can notice it um, yeah. or notice, hey, I notice that I, I feel a certain way right now. I observe it, but especially when we're performing and the lights are on and it's mm. game time, like if you're doing a, a presentation or a TED Talk, like I bet you're pretty anxious before doing that. I know when I do public speaking, I get anxious. So like what I do is I notice it and I'm like, okay, I notice it. Maybe I'll label it. All right, I feel a little anxious right now. But it doesn't mean I'm going to feel that way forever. Emotions have a shelf life. Thoughts have a shelf life. They expire. And um, so I think that that sort of piece is really important, which is I need to be able to notice. Uh, it doesn't mean I necessarily act on that uh, emotion, but I need to notice it. And I, I would assume for a lot of companies, if they're not noticing those issues, then then that's you're, a much bigger issue. Well, you're you're more vulnerable, right? Um, and I would take it a step further. Noticing, absolutely. If you're not noticing, you need to notice that's step one. But once you notice, it's what do you do with it? How do you, and that's where the, analyt the analytical side of my brain comes in is, yes, I notice. And then at the appropriate time, maybe it's not in that moment, but later taking mental note to come back to it and say, why? Again, why is my favorite word? So why did I feel that? Why did I, what does that mean? And that will lead you down a chain of, something wherever it leads you which is where that self-evolution comes in that peace comes in yeah i call that interpretation like how am i interpreting those feelings or those thoughts and to your point if you just sweep them under the rug then that rug gets really dusty underneath and manifests into something uh that, that can really be tricky and really be challenging uh, i use a phrase all the time with my clients don't wait until it rains to build a roof uh and i don't i don't know if you've heard of that before um but use Talk to us a little bit about the mechanics of roof building. And so really let's go into the weeds and like, what do you do when you're working with clients on, on roof building and, and how do you help them build their roof so that they are, as you said, crisis ready? Crisis ready, which is brand invincibility really. So, so crisis readiness is a, I mean, it's two words that existed before, but it, they, I've given them a very clear, precise definition. And so what it means to be crisis ready is that your entire team, 
throughout the entire organization, every single member of the team understands what risk looks like, how to assess its material impact on the organization. So is it an issue versus is it a crisis and is it a crisis and what is the emotional relatability of it so that you properly understand what will come of it? Can you give us the distinction between issue and crisis? Issue I just and crisis. want to make sure I understand that because that sounds like a, a really important piece for Absolutely. For you. So a, a, a crisis is a negative event or situation that stops business as usual to some extent. It stops business as usual because it needs to be escalated up to leadership. You need leadership's decision-making, directive, guidance in order to manage it. Why? Because it threatens long-term material impact on one or all of the following five things. People, so stakeholders, environment, business operations, your organization's reputation, and or the organization's bottom line. So negative event or situation stops business as usual, needs to be escalated straight up to the very top of leadership because it threatens long-term material impact on uh, people, environment, business operations, reputation, and or bottom line. An issue is also a negative event or situation, but the difference is that it doesn't stop business as usual. I see issue management as business as usual on hyperdrive. It is part of your job. It's just the more challenging part of your job. And it, it, it demands immediate attention, but it doesn't require escalation to leadership because it doesn't threaten that long-term material impact on any one of those five things. It's interesting because I work with CEOs and head coaches, and one of the complaints that they often give me is like, why are you emailing me this? Like, just deal with it. Like, I don't need to know about yes. this issue. Uh, and so a complaint... And CEOs and I say head coaches or athletic directors um, in the sports world or general managers in the pro sports world, you know, they get bombarded with emails and then they're stuck in their inbox and not actually getting to move forward and progress. So, um, but the, the flip side is, you know, they want to know when there's a crisis because if they don't know and then they're hearing about it after the fact, that, that hurts them too. But you need, so that's why. So being crisis ready is your entire team knows how to identify a risk, knows how to assess its material impact. So is it an issue versus a crisis? And then knows what to do with it and knows how to respond and react in a way that doesn't just manage the situation and put it to bed, but manages it in a way that actually in fosters increased trust and credibility and connection with stakeholders and the brand. And that, that's why I say being crisis ready is building brand invincibility, because if you have an entire team that's in a position trained and empowered to do that, then you can weather anything, anything that can come your way in a way that actually connects you closer to those who matter most to your business. So is that a system? Is that tools? Like how It's do a culture and it's all of the above. It's system, it's process, it's training, it's mindset, it's how the organization is led, how people are rewarded, it's... It's, it's a culture. And when Being you, crisis ready is cultural. When you work with them, are you trying to facilitate or are you teaching? Um, so I come in and I, I have a handler always. I make sure. So I, there's somebody who will own this program. I don't call it crisis management plan. That's not in my vocabulary. It's a crisis readiness program um, because programs are cultural. Plans sit on shelves and are very linear, linear and siloed. Um, so I have a handler that will own this program after me, after I, you know, I'm done my work. And it starts with everything from auditing the mindset and the culture of the organization 
to conducting, um, I conduct on average, I work with large organizations, so on average, three dozen interviews with leadership across the board, management, director, and, and C-suite, um, to really, really understand the inner workings of the organization, its day-to-day, -day, its stakeholders, everything that I need to understand. Again, I like to collect data um, and ask why. And then from there, I make sure that the baseline of education um, is set at a common denominator so that the entire crisis management team, so leadership understand, is at the same level of understanding because not it's not ever the case, right? So we have some people that understand today's realities and challenges better than others. I mean, everybody to understand what to expect in times of negative situations and what's expected of them. And then it goes to building out the program. And building out the program is um, everything from governance structure to internal processes and protocols to identifying your high-risk scenarios, doing a deep dive into each one of those, preventing the preventable risk and, and preparing for the unpreventable risk. And then it goes to training. So that's with simulations where you come in, you actually put the organization through a very controlled and safe crisis that feels extremely real using technology and people. And they have to put the program to the test and hone their crisis management skills. So they have to manage it. And you get to give instant feedback um, by escalating or de-escalating, you know, the ante on, on the simulation, on the exercise in real time. Um, and then it goes to, and then it starts all over again because then it's cultural. So cool. Uh, I've got something in my head that I want to share with you and we'll see how this maps on onto what you do. Um, so... I have this theory that our mindset and preparation should actually be different than our mindset and performance. So when you're saying you're a why person, like I want to know mm. why, to me, the word why speaks to two different aspects, curiosity, like mm -hmm. why do things work the way that they work and a purpose, like why mm. are we doing what we're doing? So I think asking why is like that. super important when we talk about preparation and, and you just hit on that, right? Like we need to know why I need data. I need to find, all right, what's at the core of this? But performance is about asking how. And so asking why, great in preparation. But when it's performance time, like I'm going to use my, my world because I'm not sure if this applies in, in, in the crisis world. But in my world, a basketball player doesn't need to ask, well, why am I not making a shot? You know, a basketball player doesn't need to ask like, hmm, I wonder yeah. why I'm out here right now. They need to figure out a solution. Right now, right here, there's a clock, there's an opponent. Uh, I need to figure out how am I going to get to where I want to go. So I always say prepare by asking why and perform by asking how. How does that map with what you're talking about? I don't know. So for me, the how needs to come before, but this is just me. The how, need, you need to know the how in order to perform. Um, before you can know the how, you need to know the why. So that all makes perfect sense. For me, the difference between preparing and performing, which I just realized works in every aspect of what I do, preparing is about me. For in, um, oh, so let's say this first. Preparing is about me, the why, the how. What am I going to do to be prepared and how do I do that? The performing is about them. Whether I'm on stage, so in preparation for being, I'm a keynote speaker, in preparation for being on stage, it's all about me. How am I going to perform? You know, what's my message? How am I going to connect? How am I going to, all of these questions. And performing is no longer about me. It's all about the audience. How am I going to deliver, like, how, how am I going to make this the best experience with the most tangible um, value to them? Being crisis ready is the same thing. When you're in becoming crisis ready, it's all about you. It's all about the organization. 
when you're in crisis, crisis management is all about them. It's mm. all about the people. Mm. Fascinating. All right, cool. I'm going to let that marinate and maybe we'll have another conversation about it in the future. Uh, we're winding down and I just want to give you a, a platform to promote whatever it is that you want to promote the book. Uh, certainly, as you just mentioned, you do keynote speaking. Uh, let people know where they can find you and how they can learn more about what you're doing. I know we talked earlier about a podcast that you're restarting. So let people know how they can find out more about all the great work that you're doing. Absolutely. Thank you. So melissaagnes.com houses everything. From there, if you're interested in learning more about crisis readiness, you will find everything from videos and articles to podcasts to a webinar series that you can um, invest in and, and you know go through to my book, which is Crisis Ready, Building an Invincible Brand in an Uncertain World. Um, yeah, so melissaagnes.com is really the hub and then you can go anywhere you need to go or want to go to explore. Awesome. Melissa, this was a lot of fun, uh, a little different. Uh, and I, I'm excited that you you shared your story and your journey. So for those that don't know Melissa, she comes off with a big smile and a warm personality. Um, so I think it's always helpful to hear um, some of the um, non-glamorous aspects mm. of people's lives because we all have challenges or issues in, in our life. And hopefully we can be ready to handle those issues. Um, I am at, at Brian Levinson on Twitter and at intentional underscore performers on Instagram. Melissa, thank you so much and looking forward to many more intentional conversations with you in the future. As, I, as am I, Brian. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. When you listen to yourself and to your truths, even if you don't fully understand them, but if you put the time and the work internally to just work every day towards uncovering it a little bit more, unleashing it a little bit more, it eventually boils, in my experience, it eventually bubbles to the top. And for me, the second it hits the surface, I need to act. If I don't act, then, then I'm wasting myself.